When it comes to the success of your book, one person is more important than everyone else. He determines whether readers will enjoy your book. He determines if word of mouth will spread, and he's the one who's ultimately funding the whole project. His name is Timothy. So who is Timothy, and where do you locate him? Well, I talk about Timothy a lot on this podcast, and yet somehow I've never done an episode about him. So we're fixing that in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. But before we can talk about Timothy, I need to take a step back and talk about avatars and personas. Most companies have what they call a customer avatar. This is a fictional amalgamation of their target customer. Some companies even print out life-size stock photos of the customer and bring her to meetings. Radio stations, for example, will have a listener avatar that all of the hosts and DJs talk to. Back when I ran a web design agency for authors, I used to take authors through a persona worksheet. I took hundreds of authors one-on-one through a persona exercise where they described their target reader and their typical ideal website visitor. We'd then print out a stock photo of their reader and tape it to their monitor. I no longer recommend this practice. Almost every author did the same thing with their reader persona. They would describe themselves in generic terms. If I was talking to a 45-year-old man, he would say he was writing to men between the ages of 30 and 50. If I was talking to a 60-year-old woman, she would say she was writing to women between the ages of 40 and 70. It turns out that most authors were not describing readers at all. They were describing themselves. And at the end of the persona exercise, they had an imaginary version of themselves that liked everything they did and couldn't wait to read their book. This imaginary friend didn't help authors make better marketing decisions, and it didn't help them write better books. And yet, personas and customer avatars are incredibly helpful for companies. So why were they not working for authors? Well, I spent some time thinking about this, and I think the reason is market research. You see, marketing-centric companies often invest in market research to develop their customer avatars. Sales-centric companies have their salespeople spend hundreds of hours talking to customers. And those salespeople then help build customer avatars based off of the kind of customers who say yes to the salespeople. Both of these methods give companies enough info about customers to create useful fictional representations. Authors, especially authors starting out, don't spend much time talking to their target readers. They are not part of book clubs, typically, and they don't interview readers, and they don't buy market research reports from companies like Kalytics, even though I feel like that's a really good investment. And I'll have an affiliate link to Kalytics in the show notes for this episode. Instead, beginning authors look inside themselves, trying to see inside what can only be found by gazing out. This is like trying to drive a car while only looking at the dashboard. Yes, knowing your speed and your RPMs is important, but if that's all you know, it will lead to a crash if you don't look out the windshield where you are going. 
<laughs> marketing blindness leads to poor decisions. And we all know this. And by poor decisions, I mean wasted money, wasted time, and well-written books that just don't sell well. And often befuddled authors who are like, my book is written well. Why is it not selling? Now, I should say that not all authors who created personas and reader avatars had this experience. Some of the authors actually had good reader personas. These are the ones that gave me hope that this was a practice that really was a helpful practice. But as I talked with those authors, the ones with the good personas, I started to realize that they all had something in common. They were basing their personas on actual people. Or more specifically, they were describing a single person they knew in real life. And the more I looked into this, the more I found that this is actually a common practice among best-selling authors. In fact, many of them will even name the specific person the book was written to on the dedication page of the book. This was how book dedications are sometimes used. The Hobbit was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, for his son, Christopher Tolkien, to enjoy. Stephen King famously writes his books specifically to thrill his wife. But this isn't just a modern practice. It turns out that writing books for specific people goes back thousands of years. For example, many of the books of the New Testament in the Bible were written to specific people. Yeah, the book of 1 Timothy, for example, was written to a man named Timothy. <laughs> And why is it First Timothy? Because it was the first book written for this guy. Uh, he got two books. So while the book originally had an audience of one, billions of people have read and enjoyed the book over the centuries. But having a specific target reader is not just helpful for marketing. It also helps improve your writing. Bland generalities water down good writing. And having a specific audience gives the book an approachability and readability that it wouldn't otherwise have. It also helps the book be more specific, giving it clarity and focus that make it more approachable for more people. And I'm not done. Having a specific reader helps you know how technical and sophisticated to make the book because you can ask, would Timothy understand this word? Would Timothy like this metaphor? Writing to a Timothy also makes writing less scary. You are not writing for a crowd of scary strangers. You are writing to Timothy, someone you know and like. This can really help with writer's block. So, as I was realizing that avatars and personas weren't helping, I stopped telling authors to create a fictional reader persona. And I stopped telling them to print out a stock photo of their target reader and put it above their computer and I switched to telling them to write to one real-life human. And you put a photo of that actual person and put it above your monitor. And once I changed this advice and authors started to use this new practice, I saw several key changes. Some found that they had no idea who they were really writing for. And they found the practice of finding a Timothy really challenging. And these authors who struggled to identify a Timothy realized that their book was in trouble, and they realized that in time to save the book, which is the best time to find out that a book is in trouble. For others, they found that having a real target reader changed everything. Why? 
because you can talk to actual human beings. You can ask them questions. You can listen for the answer. And the actual person can read drafts of your book and give you feedback. The books become better books. The marketing becomes more focused and more effective. Websites, blogs, and podcasts get more visitors, readers, and listeners. In short, having a Timothy helps authors become more successful. So let's address the number one criticism that people make to this practice, or the number one question, because it's not really criticism, and that is, won't writing to one person limit my audience? I get this question mostly from authors who have yet to sell many copies of their book. And the answer is no. (laughs) Writing to a specific person is like speaking to a person in the back of the room while giving a speech. If the person in the back of the room can hear you, everyone else can hear you too. The reality is that if you're writing your book to no one in specific, your book is for no one. You can't write a book for everyone, so you have to write your book for someone. (laughs) This seems really basic, but it's really easy to just think that readers will magically appear or our book will magically find its audience. And so I want to address the real question behind this question, which is, can't I just write a book for myself? Why do I have to write a book for the reader? And this is the real crux of the issue. And the reason you can't write a book for yourself is because you want people to buy your book. (laughs) The reader is the customer. The reader is parting with hard-earned money to buy your book. If you want readers to give you their money, you need to write something they are willing to pay for. So let go of your pride and serve your reader. Now, if you want to journal to work through your issues or because it's fun, that's great. But don't expect people to want to pay to read your journal. The difference between professionals and amateurs is money. The word professional comes from the Latin word pecunia, which means money. A professional works for money. The word amateur comes from the Latin word amor, which means love. If you write for the love of writing, you are an amateur. If you write for money, you are a professional. Now, I can see some of you getting angry, and don't shoot the messenger. These words have had these definitions for thousands of years. (laughs) Also, nothing keeps professionals from enjoying their work. Most professional authors enjoy writing, but they know that their writing is what puts food on the table, so they need to write things that people are willing to pay to read. If you want to write because you love writing, that's wonderful. I don't want to throw shade at that at all. But if that is the case, the writing itself needs to be the reward. Don't judge yourself if the books don't find commercial success because that wasn't the goal. If you're an amateur, all that should matter is that you enjoyed writing and you wrote a book that you're happy with. The sales shouldn't matter because it is not about the money. This is the domain of aristocrats, retirees, and people with day jobs. (laughs) Because you need to remember that your landlord doesn't accept love of writing as payment, (laughs) which is why you need to have some source of income. Another common source I see is wealthy spouses. (laughs) So if you have a wealthy spouse and you don't need to write for the money and you just want to write for the fun of it, that's great. Go for it. I'm not going to judge you at all. But I will warn you. Where I see authors getting discouraged is when they approach their writing as an amateur, but then they judge their success based off of professional metrics. If you're a hobbyist, the book is a success if you had fun writing it. If you're a professional, the book is a success if readers pay to read it. 
And I remember working with one author who was unwilling to accept feedback on changes to his book or his marketing. He, he wanted it to be the way he wanted it to be. He didn't particularly care about readers. He felt he was called to make it the way that it was. And so that's what he did. And then later, he was angry that the book didn't sell. Then <laughs> the problem was, he wrote the book for himself, not for his readers. But then he judged his success based off of the fact that readers didn't want to buy it. And this is what becomes toxic, and or it's what becomes discouraging is perhaps a better word. And so cut yourself some slack. If you're just writing for the fun of it and you don't have many readers, that's fine. If, any readers at all is something to celebrate. Now, some people see authors as elite aristocrats uh, writing from an ivory tower who look down on all the lowly peasant readers. And I just say, I don't have this review. I see writing as a job. Being a writer doesn't make you any nobler or of more value than someone who fixes cars. In fact, people probably need a working car more than they need your book. So get off your high horse and write the kind of book that people want to read. <laughs> The only thing standing between many authors and success is pride. If you can realize that it's not all about you, you can find commercial success. The better you serve your customers, the more customers you will have. Another objection some authors have to picking a Timothy is that if they have a professional editor, they don't need a Timothy. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what editors do and are good at. Timothy and your other beta readers are advocates for your future readers. <laughs> they know the sorts of things your specific readers will want, and they point out problems and often propose terrible solutions to the problems, the very real problems that they point out. A beta reader is like someone taking a car to a mechanic and they say, my car is squeaking when I come to a quick stop. I think it needs more oil. The feedback that the car is squeaking is critical feedback, but the proposed solution of changing the oil is useless. <laughs> a skilled mechanic will know the problem is likely with the brakes and will fix the brakes and has the skill to fix the brakes. And so what a beta reader will say something like, I don't like the protagonist. I think you should make him blonde, right? So an unlikable protagonist is a real problem, but changing the hair color is not a good solution. A good editor can help you Get ideas for how to make your protagonist more likable. So having a Timothy doesn't replace your editor. In fact, having a Timothy helps your editor help you more because now you come to the editor with problems and with challenges and you say to the editor, how do I fix these? And the editor will help you fix those problems, which by the way, editors much prefer this kind of work <laughs> because it's more fun than pointing out commas or what have you. The reason you need a Timothy and the other beta readers is because editors may know the general genre, but they may not know your specific subgenre, and they certainly don't know your specific audience. And so they can't substitute for the reader because they're not the reader. The reason you need the editor is because they are there to help you come up with solutions to the problems your readers point out. So let me give you one final example that illustrates this point really well. Imagine you're writing for children, right? Children are terrible editors, right? They can barely write, but they do know what they like in a book. You don't want to hire a child to edit your book for you, but you do want to pick a specific child to be your Timothy and perhaps some other children to be beta readers as well. If there's a part of your book that's boring or confusing to Timothy, your editor 
can help you fix it. As it is with children, it is with all kinds of readers. Okay, so now hopefully you've decided to go and find a Timothy. So what should you look for in a Timothy? Well, you want to look for Timothy with the following three qualities. First, you want him to be a reader. Remember, he represents all the other readers. He's the guy in the back of the room that you're raising your voice to reach. If your Timothy hates romance books, writing a romance book that Timothy will like will probably result in a romance that only Timothy likes. <laughs> Although, I'll add a caveat here. By thrilling a Timothy who's currently underserved by other authors, you could create a new genre and find a profitable niche for yourself. So, what makes the difference? Well, I think what makes the difference is that some people are just not readers, and no book will change that. So, don't make a non-reader your Timothy. Other people, though, are readers, but they just can't find the kind of books they want to read. You can find and identify the second kind of Timothy because his house is probably filled with unfinished books. He wants to be a reader. He wants to find books that are music to his soul. He just hasn't found them yet. <laughs> so, if you can identify that kind of Timothy and write the kind of book that will make his heart sing, you will be well on your path to being a very successful author. If someone doesn't own a bookshelf, don't make them your Timothy. <laughs> uh, the second thing you want to look for in a Timothy is that you want them to be a fan of you. They need, ideally, to like your writing more than they like you. This is why family members are tricky to use as Timothys. Family members can work, but only if they're disagreeable enough to tell you when they hate something. Many of us have family members that are very agreeable, right? Your grandmother's not going to tell you probably that your book is terrible because she just wants you to be happy. Stephen King's wife, though, is very disagreeable, or she's the kind of disagreeable to tell Stephen to, you know, to shut up or to say, hey, this isn't working for me. And so that does work. Your children also often are disagreeable enough to tell you when your book is boring. So if you're a parent writing for your child, your child actually might be a good Timothy. But your parents, and especially your grandparents, probably not. But ideally, again, the Timothy is not a family member, and they're a fan of your writing more than they're a fan of you. But as I look at successful authors, many of them have family members as the Timothy. So I don't want to write off family members altogether. Uh, the third thing you want to look for in a Timothy is you want an experimenter. You want to find a Timothy who's willing to be a beta reader. We've already talked about beta readers, and you probably are already familiar with the concept of beta readers. And I'll say authors typically have multiple beta readers. Timothy is the most important of the beta readers. So let's say your beta readers are disagreeing about your book. Some say it's too fast-paced, and Timothy thinks it's too slow-paced. Well, Timothy is the tiebreaker. Timothy is the source of truth. If Timothy thinks your book is too slow-paced, the book is too slow-paced. Now, Timothy may have some terrible solutions for how to speed up the book, but again, that's where you go to your editor <laughs> to help speed up the book. You know, blow some cars up or something. But the Timothy is the single person you're trying to thrill. Again, it's the person in the back of the room you're raising your voice to reach. Okay, so now you that you found your Timothy, now what? 
Well, the next step is to ask him or her, and, and I should point out, I'm using Timothy as a specific example of using specific examples. <laughs> Your Timothy may be a woman, and it will probably have a different name than Timothy. So, Timothy is a term to represent specificity. I'm not saying that you have to pick a man and then it has to be Timothy. Hopefully, there's no confusion there. So, you found your Timothy. The next step is to ask him if you can make him your target reader. And if, I feel like this is important because the difference between a friend and a stalker is consent. And you're going to be doing a little bit of stalking here. So you want to make sure that he's cool with that. <laughs> now, you're not really going to be stalking. But I do want you to follow Timothy on Goodreads. Timothy's Goodreads profile will tell you what he's reading and what he thinks about those books. And it'll also tell you what his favorite books are in your genre. And you can look over his one and two star reviews to see what really turns him off, right? What's really triggering for him? What does he really love? Timothy's Goodreads profile will be a wealth of information. And you can really go deep on just one person and read all of their reviews and all of their ratings. I also recommend that you take Timothy out for coffee and ask him lots of questions. Remember, this is the advantage of working with real live human beings, that they actually exist. (laughs) In this world of AI and social media, it's really easy to get so disconnected that you are disconnected and you're hoping the book will reconnect you. But the books that connect are books that come from connected people. Now, I should say, while you're having coffee with Timothy or lunch or whatever, this is not your time to pitch your book. That's not the purpose of the relationship, and it's not the purpose of this meeting. This is your time to listen for what Timothy wants in a good story, what Timothy wants in a good book. So, here's some questions to get you started. You'll have more than these, and I imagine you'll come up with others that are more specific to your genre. But these are the kinds of questions I think that will help you get to some really useful answers. So, what are your favorite movies and why? So, you don't just want him to list the movies. You ask follow-up questions like, okay, why did you like that movie? And really get him talking. Because his answers to this question will tell you what he's looking for in a good story. Another great question is, if money were no object, where in the world would you travel? These are classic, famous stories. But as an author, you now have the ability to grant this wish, Right? Timothy's answer could be a great location for your next story. If Timothy is always long to see the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, then maybe make your story take place in Dubai or or have your protagonist visit the Burj Khalifa at one point, right? Who knows where your Timothy wants to go, but you as an author could take him there. And your $20 book will be way cheaper than a trip to Dubai. (laughs) Nothing in Dubai is cheap. What is your favorite era in history? This question is particularly helpful if you write anything historical, but if you write historical fiction, consider that time period for your next book. And then the final kind of generic question is, what books are you reading right now? Just read those books too. As you are asking these questions, pay specific attention for Timothy's hopes, dreams, frustrations, loves, and politics. All of this will help you craft the kind of story that will resonate with Timothy. And yes, I mentioned politics, so let's talk about that briefly. There are three political factions in America right now. Democrats, please don't talk to me about politics, types, and Republicans. You can target Timothy's faction and maybe one faction over on the spectrum, maybe. But I'll say that please don't talk to me about politics types are growing more and more hostile to politics of any kind. (laughs) So 
And a lot of my listeners are in the please don't talk to me about politics faction. And if that's you, you're probably feeling uncomfortable right now. You're like, what is Thomas going to say? <laughs> I'm going to talk about politics for the next one minute. <laughs> so no one that I know of is able to create something new that's able to target all three groups right now. That's just not the state of the world. And I'm sorry to say that. Democrats and Republicans don't read the same books anymore. They don't watch the same movies. They don't drive the same cars. And they don't drink the same beer. In fact, where I live, you can often tell a woman's political affiliation just by her hairstyle. The separation is very different than how it was even just five or ten years ago. And so realize that picking a Timothy, you're picking a political faction and a moral system. There's a set of moral obligations and moral expectations that are very different faction to faction. If Timothy is a Democrat, don't post photos of your gun collection on social media. If Timothy is a don't talk to Biggie about politics type, don't change your avatar for the current cause. And if Timothy is a Republican, don't share your pronouns. So that's all I'll say about politics. But just realize you're picking a Timothy, you're also picking politics. So should you follow Timothy on social media? During my first draft of this episode, I had a, a bullet that said, you know, follow Timothy on social media. And you still can if you want to. But here's the problem is that people are not their true selves on social media. Social media is very performative and where people are kind of performing a performance based off of what they feel that their community is expecting from them. So they're not very authentic. Almost no one is authentic. And if they are, it's this weird kind of raw, visceral authenticity that's that's in its own way a little off-putting. And if social media is your only connection to Timothy, you're not going to really know him well enough to make that kind of story that will make his heart sing. Because reading a book is a very private activity, right? You can buy a book and read it. No one knows you bought that book and no one knows you're reading that book, right? And you want to write a book that connects with Timothy, the actual person, not Timothy, the persona that he puts on to impress his friends on social media. So there are a lot of people who pretend to be far more political than they are because all their friends on, on social media are pretending to be political. But if you were to actually talk to Timothy, he really doesn't care. <laughs> He's just going along with the group. And so you want to know that. You want to know who you're writing to. Or maybe he's the other way around. And he's actually fiercely political, but he's hiding it to fit in. <laughs> uh, there's really no replacement for getting to know someone in real life. I'm going to keep saying this. It's time to come out of the cave. The, the pandemic is over. Meet people in real life. And you can really make a friend because so few people have somebody who really want to get to know them and really want to serve them like this and are wanting to get them coffee. Like this is a really great opportunity for both of you. With a thousand new books releasing each day, a lot of authors are wondering how they can stand out. And I'll tell you, this is it. Timothy is your cheat code. <laughs> because of those thousand books, most of those authors, they're writing for themselves. Almost all authors write for themselves. Most people are pretty selfish. Not all, right? This is nothing groundbreaking. The only groundbreaking thing about what I've been talking about is I gave this specific person a name. But writing for a Timothy really is like a cheat code. And as more and more readers see your book and say, finally, a book for me, which is what you get when you write for a specific person, you'll quickly climb that bestseller list and not just make more money, but also have more influence. And you're for sure going to have one super fan. <laughs> uh, the Novel Marketing Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. 
<laughs> You'll notice this podcast has had no ads up to this point. I don't have ads at the beginning. I don't have ads in the middle. I just have one short shout out for something at the end. And I do this partly because we are listener supported. Listeners who find this podcast helpful give some of that value back by becoming patrons. But I then give the patrons even more. So it's not just you paying for the episodes you've already heard. Patrons also get an exclusive patrons-only episode every month. They also get exclusive discounts on many of my courses and at higher levels, access to the podcast host directory and at the highest level, a shout out on the podcast itself. So if you would like to hear your name in your book featured here at the end of episodes, I would love to feature it and just go to patreon.com slash novel marketing and sign up at the highest level. But at whatever level you sign up for uh, the first episode of the following month, I give a special shout out to all the new patrons because I really do appreciate each one of you uh, who help keep this podcast on the air. I, I particularly appreciate it in these tough economic times. I realize not everyone can afford to support their local neighborhood podcaster. And so for those of you who do, I really, really appreciate it. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. The audio engineering is by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler. And to read that blog version of this episode, go to authormedia.com slash 368. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.